Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you've got your Bibles, will you join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We are glad that you braved the rain and came out this morning. It's just a blessing to be able to be together as the gathering of the saints. We gather for many different purposes. We gather because this is an opportunity to sing praises to our Lord. We gather to encourage each other in our walk. We gather to submit under God's word, to hear his word, and to be able to leave this place changed. And we gather as an act of faith. If you remember correctly, in the Old Testament, they gave the Sabbath, and it was kind of an agricultural kind of community. And if you're familiar with what it means to be in an agricultural community, you know that it's not really, there is never a day off. You've got to feed the animals, you've got to water the plants, and, and yet God says on the Sabbath to rest. It was his way of showing that, that his people were going to submit and trust and put their faith in him, that he was going to be the one to provide. So as all the other kind of communities around them were working and striving, they looked at Israel, and Israel was saying, we're not working today. We're trusting our God to provide. So we come here and we gather, and we want to say that, yes, our king is worthy of us gathering. We are the family of God. It's good to be with you again. Uh, Next week, we're going to have our congregational meeting, just an opportunity to thank God for his provision in 2022 and kind of look forward. What does it look like for us in the next year? So I encourage you to come back and be a part of that. Hear God's word, starting in verse 10, just to 12, just a couple verses. It says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven these things into which angels long to look. Well, it's called Hell Week for a purpose. The name kind of speaks for itself. It's a week-long, grueling practice or training event, which is when you're taken apart, you begin to wonder, maybe death might be the better option. And you're really not sure. Usually Hell Week takes part in the dog days of summer, incredibly hot outside. And when when the temperature reaches its boiling point, this is when your coach says it's time to run and run and run some more and then run on top of that. And as you're running, your legs become numb, your your mind becomes fuzzy, and your body begins to say, I don't think I can take another step. At this this point, your coach begins to say, 10 more laps. And you're like, 10 more laps? And I don't even think I can make another step. So therefore, in the middle of this week, the problem with with this week is it lasts, and there's grueling, and there's suffering, and it just keeps on going, and there's everybody who's participating, a point where they come, and they say, is this suffering worth it? And is, is this pain really going to pay off? And there's this temptation to just throw in the white flag and say, I am through with this all. But this is when your coach comes to you, he understands you're at your breaking point, and he begins to shout these words. Suffer now. 
glory's coming. Feel the pain now because triumph is just on the other side. What he needs us to see. If you want to reach glory, then you first often have to walk down the road of suffering first. This often doesn't make sense to us. Walking down a road of suffering to to reach triumph, they seem at odds with each other. So therefore, it's such our temptation in this life to avoid the suffering, to avoid the trial, to get off that road. But if we get off that road too soon, the warning is we'll never reach the triumph or the glory. It's a vastly important lesson. A lesson not just part of sports, but it's the message of the Bible. Yes, this road of suffering really is the road that leads to triumph and glory. How do we know that to be the case? Because we see it in Jesus. Why is this message so important to who Peter is writing to? If you remember correctly, here was a group that was suffering. They, they were dispersed apart away from their home into five different regions in modern-day Turkey or, or Asia Minor at the time. Forced away from their homes in Rome and then forced into a, a place that was unfamiliar to them. On top of that, they were beginning to feel these embers of persecution taking place in society. And it doesn't take much society, or too much persecution in your life for anxiety to begin to fill you. Is this going to be the day in which the authorities arrest me? Am I going to come home from work and see the rest of my family here? Is somebody going to be taken away from us? And all this anxiety begins to fill up within your soul. And on top of that, here was a community that was that because of their faith, they were pushed aside from society. They weren't able to trade with other people, and therefore they were having financial difficulty. Here was a group of individuals that Peter is writing to in which, yes, their road was hard, it was difficult, it was full of suffering. As they're walking down this road, questions begin to arise in their soul. That's what trials do. They create questions. Brian the Ritz would actually define trials as this, those times in our lives when we have more questions than answers. I think some of us can relate. In a hospital room, you're dealing with a wayward child, those times in your life in which the financial difficulties kind of build up, you begin to ask the question, where are you, God, in this? See, our questions, they have that common denominator in mind. We're wondering, where are you, God, in the midst of our suffering and our pain? And have you abandoned us? But yet Peter in this letter is saying, no, that's not the case at all. How do we know that that God has not abandoned us? We see it in those first verse, the very first verse of this book. Again, he uses this word chosen, elect. That we are God's chosen people. And if you remember correctly from a couple weeks ago, what does that mean? This word chosen signifies that that God has an overwhelming love for his people. It signifies the fact that he has this ever-ending care for us. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. It's a message that is repeated throughout the scriptures. In fact, in John 4, Jesus would come to us 
He said, this is the will of God, that I will not lose one of my children that he gives to me. He repeats that same thing in John chapter 6 when he says, here is my sheep. And catch the personal pronoun there. They're, they're, they're his sheep. We are his. He says, my sheep, they, they know him, my, my, my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and nobody will ever be able to snatch them from my hand. Again, repeated in Romans 8.38 when he says that, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Again, repeated in Romans 13. Which he says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So the New Testament writers are repeating this theme over and over again because they understand in the midst of the trials, we begin to question God's presence in our life. That's what trials do. Begin to beg the question, God, where are you in all of this? Peter needs us to see that he's right there by our side. So here Peter is beginning to remind us by these words, chosen, but but what's so interesting about as he's beginning to point us to this fact is, is Peter is going about, he, he, he not only reminds us that we are God's chosen people, but he goes on in this book. It's what makes this book so powerful. Because what Peter is wanting us to do is he wanting, he's wanting us to look at suffering and trials in a different light. He wants us to have a different perspective of them. He wants to transform our theology, transform the way we think about them, begin to have a biblical, biblical perspective of the trials that take place in our lives, which makes this book so powerful because it becomes the, the healing balm that we need in those times of distress. But the way that he begins to reshape our way of trials is interesting. If you're making your way through this book, what you understand is he actually starts almost in a backwards fashion. He doesn't start with the, the present trial, but rather he forces our eyes forward. If you're making your way through this book, you see verses 3 through 5 actually is him looking to our, our eternal reward. He doesn't deal with the present trial first, but he, but he begins to shift our eyes to, to focus on that, that, that blessing that's, that's going to come, that is going to last forever. And it's not until verse 6 that he begins to deal with the issue at hand. Why does he do that? Because Peter understands that eternity has a way of affecting how we look at our trials. Specifically, when you and I look at eternity and realize the length of eternity, we begin to see our trials as such as Peter does, temporary. Look at what he says in verse 6. Peter writes, Now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. I know that verse is from last week, but just go with me for a second. What is he saying there? Seeing these trials are for a little while. Can you imagine who Peter is writing to? And they're, and they're reading these words, a little while, Peter? Man, we're suffering. It doesn't feel like a little while. It feels like this thing is enduring. It's hard. It's long. It's lasting too long. And yet Peter in this moment says, would you just shift your eyes heavenward? You begin to reflect on your, your heavenly reward that, that, that lasts forever. It, it does not decay. It's a future inheritance that, that will be with you. That's undefiled as he writes. Peter says when you get your mind on eternity, it begins to allow you to see the temporary pain as just that 
temporary. It's just like the coach in the midst of, of your week of struggle and your pain in this practice. What does he want you to do? He wants you to look at the end goal, glory, a championship. He says, suffer now. Why? Pain is temporary. Glory lasts forever. So many words, Peter is almost saying the same thing in 1 Peter. He's saying, yes, church, I know that you're going through a difficult time, but, but this pain is temporary. Guess what? Glory lasts forever, so get your eyes on that future reward. And as you get your eyes on that future reward, you begin to look at your pain completely different. So yes, he's reshaping how we look at the struggles and the pain in our life. And as he's as he kind of reshaping how we look at these things, not only does he ask us to look forward to the future reward, but now in our passage, what does he do? He calls us to look back. He asks us to look forward in verses 3 through 4, and now he's going to ask us to look back specifically. What he wants us to do in this moment is to see how our story fits in the overall biblical narrative. Look again what it says in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, this great reward that's coming, Jesus Christ has died in our place and for our sins. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who perished about the or prophesied, they didn't perish, the prophets who per- prophesied about the grace that was to be theirs searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when, they, when, when he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but, but you in the things that you have now been announced to, to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look. So again, look at what he's doing. He, he in the first couple of verses of our passage, he calls us to look forward, verses 3 through 5. Then he deals with the present in verses 6 through 9. He's saying, hey, this trial is, is like this refining fire in your life. It's going to show you how, how your faith is true and right. And then now it's in verses 10 through 12 that he asks us to look back in our past, specifically trying to get us to caught up in this, this idea of, of where we fit in this larger biblical narrative. See, what Peter is doing constantly throughout this book is he's calling us to reflect back on, again, biblical history. And specifically, God's story through the nation of Israel. In fact, just at the very first verse again in this book, what does he do? He uses these words, chosen exiles, elect exiles. And when we think of the word chosen, we think of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. When you hear the word exiles, we think of that time in which the divided kingdom was here and they were exiled off. And we hear this word uh, dispersion, we think of the uh, diaspora, those time in, 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 in Israel's history in which they were too part of this dispersion. See, wanting us to reflect on the nation of Israel, specifically for this church, because first of all, he needs them to understand they're not the only ones who've had a hard time in this life. I think, I think there's this temptation in which we're going through suffering or trials and we look at our lives and we think we're the only ones who have ever suffered. And Satan begins to whisper to you, look at God's got it out for you. Look at all those around you. They're not suffering like you. God must have left you. 
That's specifically true in the social media era where we just look on social media and what do we see? We see smiling faces. We see people having a good time. We see them on vacation, having throwing parties. You never see our friends in the midst of the hospital room. And Satan gets us to have this woe is me attitude when it comes to our own suffering and pain. Man, if he can convince us that we're the only ones who are suffering, he can get us to become angry at God and what Peter does in this passage, he says, awakens us from that false reality. He says, do you not know that Israel suffered just as much as you? And yet they were God's chosen nation? He's saying, just look back on this biblical narrative. And you just look and you're amazed. Abraham suffered from, for, for, for decades from infertility. King David himself, the the king, the the great one that was going to be ruling over Israel was hiding in caves because people wanted him dead. Joseph, sold into slavery. Job, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He says, just look. Just look at the nation of Israel's history. Constantly on the run. Constantly going through hardship and pain. So you're not alone in this. For some reason, that's comforting. To know that people have, before us have suffered. Christians in this life will suffer, and those that live after us will suffer as well. You and I live in this fallen world, and suffering is a part of it. What Peter is trying to do is he's trying to connect us to this common story that that the people of God have suffered, but, but what he needs us to see is this road of suffering is eventually going to lead to a road of triumph and glory. He wants to show us that, yes, this road of suffering actually does lead to our future glory. How is he going to show us the case? It's through Jesus. As he's pointing us back to this biblical narrative, specifically in our passage, verses 10 through 12, what is he trying to get us to see? He's trying to get us to see Jesus' story. And in so many words in this passage, he's saying, this is your story as well. Jesus' story is a story, if you remember correctly, is a story that the the road of suffering led to triumph and glory, as it says in verses 10 and 11. And he says, church, this is your story too. And yet what he says in this passage, he's saying the biblical prophets, they struggled in seeing that. Again, look at what he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation The salvation story where Christ died, he suffered and rose to glory. He says, the prophets who who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, they inquired carefully. They're trying to put the pieces together. Verse 11, what, 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 what are they inquiring about? What person or time the Spirit in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? Peter says when these, when these Old Testament prophets were telling the story, were prophesizing about Jesus coming, this great Messiah, they were writing to us a story about how the Messiah would suffer. But yet at the same time, they're writing a story about how the King of Kings was going to rule, this Messiah was going to be great and lifted high. And as they're trying to, to look at this picture of of suffering and glory, they're seeing how do these pieces come together? Just imagine Isaiah writing Isaiah 53. He's writing about this coming Messiah and he's saying he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. 
Going on to write that people that, that, that would, would turn their faces away, away from the Messiah and that he was going to be the Lamb of God slaughtered? Imagine them trying to put those pieces together. How could the Messiah be walking down this road of suffering? And they're trying, they're struggling. It's not coming together like they wanted it to. Imagine the writer of Genesis talking about how the sun would come and the serpent would bite his heel. It's not really a good story of how the serpent is going to bite the sun. But yet he writes on that the sun is going to, to step on the serpent's head. And again, they're trying to put these pieces together and they don't have the whole picture yet. So they're struggling. And, and on that side of the cross, they're, they're not able to see the full picture yet. Even Peter understands this quite well because on that side of the cross, he struggled too. He didn't understand how this picture of a, of a king could walk down this road of suffering as well. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem where they're going to kill me. And put me upon the cross. I'm going to raise three days later. And what is Peter's response? That it never happened to you. See, Peter couldn't understand how suffering and glory could be written in the same story. He, he couldn't understand how God would ever be a part of watching his son walk down this road of suffering. Yet I think we, like we struggle with the same thing. And trials and pain come into our life. We struggle to put the puzzle pieces together as well. How could God allow this to take place? Why wouldn't he do something about it? Why would he look at his children that he loves so much and let them suffer and cry and be in pain? See, we struggle to understand how, how the road of suffering can ever lead to the road of glory. So therefore, what is our question in the midst of our suffering and pain? God must abandon us. Where are you, God? Yet Peter says in this passage, it shouldn't be that way. Why? Because we're not like the Old Testament prophets. We have the, the puzzle box. We have the whole picture. We have seen how, how this slaughtered lamb is going to be the triumphal king. We have seen how the man of sorrows becomes this man, this king, this great Messiah in which all knees will come and bow at the throne. We have seen it. We know the story. We know how this road of suffering leads to glory. So therefore, Peter is saying, in the midst of your suffering, hold fast, children, because you know how your God works. And yes, this road of suffering is the road that leads to glory because you've seen it in the King of Kings. What Peter is trying to get his church to understand in this moment is in their suffering, in their pain, in their persecution, it's not that God has stepped off the throne. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten about them. It doesn't mean he was caught off guard and now he's trying to fix the problem. It doesn't mean that he has abandoned his children. But rather it means that they have been united to Christ's story. That they are sharing in his sufferings. They're walking down the same road, Jesus Christ road, that road of suffering that leads to glory. 
When you and I begin to look at trials in this way, it's transforming. How are these biblical writers like James able to say, consider it pure joy, brethren, whenever you face trials of many kind because of this reality? Trials is a sign not of God leaving us, but a sign that we're aligned with him, that he walks this road with us, the same road he walked. And it's the road that eventually leads to glory. This is what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3. Do you remember his words? He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Catch this next part, sharing in his sufferings. Even death. To somehow obtain the resurrection of the dead. In that verse, he's really speaking this passage. He says, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. I want to align with him, somehow being able to have this fellowship within him, walking down that same road. Why? To somehow to obtain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, what Paul is saying, I want to walk down this road of suffering because I understand where it leads. It leads to glory. This is how the biblical writers begin to look at suffering and pain in their life. This is how they're able to say, yes, it's a great joy to be able to suffer. Because it shows my alignment, my fellowship with my king because he walked down that same road. Old prophets didn't get it. They didn't have the full picture. They couldn't see how suffering and glory, suffering and the story of God could be together as one. But church... We have the story. This is why it's called our living hope. In the midst of our pain, we have the story that yes, this road of suffering is hard. Sometimes it's dark. But the great news of being a believer is it always leads to glory and triumph. In fact, somebody who understood this so well was a woman, Dr. Helen Roosevelt. Dr. Helen Roosevelt, if you understand her story, you see and you look at her and all you see is Jesus. But man, did she live a hard life. She understood what that road of suffering was all about. Early on in her medical, kind of in, in medical college, uh, she's getting her degree there and she comes to saving face. She comes to, to understand who Jesus is. And from that moment on, she says, I'm going to dedicate myself to, to missions. So she goes and she moves into Africa. She's living in the Congo at the time. There was a, this kind of, up, uh, kind of uh, these, uh, these, these people that were kind of taking over kind of the government at the time. And, and she's struggling. The rebels come eventually to her house. They take her to be a prisoner. And there, one of the rebels kicks her in the face with his boot and knocks all, out all of her teeth. It just gets worse from there. They don't just rape her once, but she's raped twice in prison. But listen, listen to what she writes. She says when this trial was taking place, as she was a prisoner from these rebel armies, she says, I wasn't praying, I was beyond praying. So someone back home was praying earnestly for me. Because if I'd prayed, any prayer that would have come out of me would have been, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? 
And yet in that moment, she says, suddenly there was God. I didn't see a vision, didn't hear a voice. I just knew with every ounce of my being that God was actually virtually there. God, in all his majesty and power, he he stretched out his arms to me. He surrounded me with his love. She goes on to write this. One word. One word became unbelievably clear, and that was the word privilege. God didn't didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or the humiliation. No, it was all there. But it was altogether different. It was for him. It was with him. It was in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way with the edge of fellowship of his suffering. Remarkable words. But what is she saying in this moment? She's saying in the midst of her trial and her pain and this hard, dark road of suffering, it wasn't a sign that God left her. It was a sign that she was able to share in his sufferings. She had fellowship with him. She began to realize that this road of suffering leads to a road of glory. Maybe you're in this room this morning And you'd say, yes, Aaron, this road that I'm walking right now is hard, it's painful, it's difficult. What God wants you to hear in this moment is you're not alone. He's with you. He understands what you're going through because he walked that same road. He knows what it looks like to be abandoned. He knows what it looks like to to have your, your friend betray you. He knows what it looks like to be full of anxiety. He knows what it looks like to be pushed to the side. So in the midst of you walking down this road, he says, I am with you, I understand you, and I'm not leaving you. And he says, keep on walking. Because one day soon, and very soon, that road is going to turn into a road of glory and triumph. How do we know that to be true? Because we've seen it with Christ. And because our faith unites us with him. He says, keep on walking. You're united with me. Your story is the same. Yes, suffer in this life, glory in the next. Suffer in this life, triumph in the next. So fear not, child. Because you are God's chosen exile. God, I'm thankful God, oh, how I'm thankful that you give us such hope. Oh, God, this world is tough. Oh, God, but would you comfort us with your word? Let it be that healing balm that we need this morning to encourage your church. So many times we come weary. So many times we look at the pain in this world and we weep. Oh God, but we set our eyes on that future reward. Imperishable. Last forever. God, be with your church. 
that we would be people who are, yes, united so strongly with you. Give us that hope when we walk down the road of suffering. It is a road that leads to glory and triumph. To those suffering in this place, would you wipe their tears away this morning? Let them look forward to that day in which they'll have no more tears. Let them see a God who loves them, who's wrapped his arms around them, and is not going to leave them. God, we need that assurance. So be with your church. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.